Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Here's Pastor Meg with the message, The Supernatural Scriptures. All right, so today I have the privilege of teaching through a very important passage. The reason this passage is so significant is because it deals with a very significant topic. And that topic is divine revelation. Divine revelation. Regarding this topic, you need to know that the eternal God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, has spoken. And so even though he has no beginning and no end and is so far beyond us, and even though he transcends our material universe and is so far above us, the good news is that the infinite God has reached down to communicate to us. And so the big idea of the message today is simply this. The creator has spoken to his creation, everybody look at me please, specifically through the supernatural scriptures. The Bible is one of the greatest gifts that God ever gave to humanity. And so what in the world is it? What is the Bible? And so to get answers to that question and many other questions, including questions about God, questions about creation, questions about the fall and redemption, you know already what I'm gonna say, but I always uh, encourage you guys to go to gotquestions.org. And so regarding the Bible, gotquestions.org says this. It says that the Bible is great literature and the all-time number one best seller. It contains history, entertaining stories, poetry, philosophy, and personal letters. But more than that, this is what's important, the Bible is God's word. If you have to speak of a single purpose of the Bible, it would be to reveal God to us. The Bible is God's self-revelation to humanity. It tells us of our sin and of God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ, so well said, great, great website. And so our English word, Bible, comes from the Greek word, biblion, which simply means book. And there is no other book like this book on the entire planet. The Bible actually has 66 books written by some 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years. So regarding the Old Testament, there are 39 books. They can be divided into these categories. First of all, you have the law, Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then you have the historical books. There are 12 of those, ranging from Joshua all the way down in history to Esther. And then you have five poetic books. You got Job, through the Song of Solomon. You got the major prophets. There's five of those. That's Isaiah through Daniel. And then finally, you got a really big section of little um, books. That's the minor prophets. And there are 12 of those, Hosea through Malachi. And so the Old Testament was written from around 1400 B.C., until 400 B.C., from Moses all the way to Malachi, and it was primarily written in the Hebrew language with a little bit of Aramaic mixed in as well. 
regarding the New Testament, there are 27 books. They can be broken down into these categories. You got biography. And that, of course, are the great gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John telling the story of Jesus. And then you have one historical book, that's Acts. And then I personally am so grateful for the Pauline epistles. There are 13 Pauline epistles. You think about how, how God used this maniac this incredibly intellectual maniac who's persecuting the church, and he revealed, Jesus revealed himself to him, changed him around, and he went from persecutor of the church to arguably the greatest apostle of the church, and he writes most of the New Testament. I mean, how many of you guys are thankful this morning for the apostle Paul, right? I am. The gospel is just so clear through Paul, and there's 13 Pauline epistles, and then there's eight, general epistles, Second Peter that we're studying um, uh, this month is a general epistle. And then of course you got the great book of Revelation, the prof, uh, prophecy book at the end of your Bible. The New Testament was written from approximately AD 45 until approximately AD 95, all right? So we believe James wrote his letter around A.D. 45, and of course, John writing the great book of Revelation between 90 and 95 A.D. It is written in the common Greek language, otherwise known as Koine Greek. And so the Bible is virtually a very large library um, of, of all kinds of information. And yet, here's what you need to know, it never contradicts itself. Dr. Norman Geisler, somebody who I've learned a lot from in the last specifically four years of my life, in a great documentary called The God Who Speaks, he said this, he's now in heaven, but he said, you have a book written by some 40 authors over 1,500 years on dozens of different topics, look at this, that have absolute unity. So it has amazing unity within great diversity which is accounted for by what? You tell me. Deity, all right? And so 40 authors writing about so many different topics, you would think the Bible would be filled with contradictions. But as Dr. Geisler said, despite the diversity of authors and topics, the Bible has absolute unity, and the only way you can explain that is the one divine author that's behind it all. And so ladies and gentlemen, the Old Testament is primarily about a nation. The New Testament is primarily about a man. The Old Testament, primarily about the nation of Israel. The New Testament, primarily about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so God used Israel to bring the Messiah into the world. We're told that in the opening verse of our New Testament. Matthew 1.1 says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word Christ, Christos, simply means Messiah. The book of the, of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Look at this. The son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, so those two names, Abraham, David, would be of monumental significance to the first century Jewish reader. Why? Because the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, declares that the Messiah has to be a descendant of Abraham, 
and has to be a descendant of David. Jesus of Nazareth fits the bill. As the son of Abraham, he fits the racial qualifications. As the son of King David, he fits the regal qualifications. And by the way, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, one of his sons is called Judah. The Bible also prophesies the Messiah would have to come from the tribe of Judah. Guess what, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. All right, so why did he come? Why in the world did Jesus come to the earth? Lots of reasons, here's two big ones. Number one, he came to fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies of the promised Messiah, and he fulfilled them to the T. But number two, he came to provide redemption, and he came to provide redemption not just for the nation of Israel, how many of you Gentiles are thankful for this? He came to provide uh, redemption for all mankind. For anybody, anywhere, at any time who would turn to him in repentance and faith. And so here's a very important question. How do we know it's true? How do we really know that Jesus of Nazareth really is indeed the promised Messiah, how do we know that the Gospels that share the story of Jesus from four different vantage points are not just a bunch of myths? Well, ladies and gentlemen, Peter tells us how we can know. And so right now, if you're looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, can you say amen? Now here, everybody look at me real quick. Um, you know, I, I love coming in here and having a, an emotional and spiritual experience because God, uh, Jesus told the woman at the well, you, know, you need to worship God in spirit and in truth. So how, how many of you guys are thankful, right, that we can do that, we can gather together, right, and worship God in spirit and truth? So important. And the lyrics are so important because we engage our minds in worship. And what you need to know when it comes time to study God's Bible, when you come into a, the back doors of a church, you do not check your mind at the door. We have a reasonable faith, and it's not just about emotions. It's also about the intellect. And so the question is, how do we know that this stuff is true? How do we know that the New Testament isn't filled with myths? Peter's gonna answer that question Intellectually, right now, here we go, 2 Peter 1, 16. He says, for we, the apostles, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Messiah but we were eyewitnesses. Can you guys say the word eyewitnesses, please? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter said, we didn't make this stuff up. All right, so Star Wars may be really fun to watch, but I don't think anybody in this room, or at least I hope not, really believes that a guy named Han Solo, along with a Wookiee named Chewbacca, is one day gonna fly through the galaxy in a spacecraft called the Millennium Falcon, right? Fun to watch, but we know it's a myth. Um, the Lord of the Rings, classic movies, but nobody really believes that some evil being created a ring that lures men and causes you to disappear when you put on. We may want that to be true, wouldn't that be cool, right? 
poof, you're gone. But we know it's a myth. The Chronicles of Narnia, wonderful stories. But all of us know that you can't go home today, no matter how bad of a day you're having, and walk through your wardrobe back into a parallel universe somewhere. We may want that to be true on certain days, but we know it's a myth, all right? As intriguing as those stories may be, we know they're myths, and here's the problem. False teachers were coming on the scene there in the first century, latter half of the first century. Here's the issue. They were saying the stories of Jesus were myths, right? Incarnation, miracles, um, resurrection from the dead, um, ascension into the sky. Come on. You know, give me a break. What nonsense. And the baseless assertions of the false teachers were beginning to wreak havoc upon the church. And so in the same way, many people today really believe that the stories of the New Testament are just mythological tales on the same level as Star Wars, Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings. And so here's the million dollar question. What would you say? What would you say to the skeptic who believes that Christianity is based on myths? What in the world would you say? Now if you're not sure, this text today is gonna help you out tremendously because our passage today teaches this truth right here. Far from being a myth, Christianity is based on the testimony of, can you guys say that last word please? Eyewitnesses. Super, super important, you get this. Eyewitnesses. That means that the apostles saw Jesus give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, the ability to speak to the mute, strength to walk to cripple people, smooth skin to lepers, and delivers from bondage to demon-possessed people. They actually saw Jesus feed thousands of people with a little boy's lunch. They saw him stand up in the boat and, and rebuke the storm and calm the sea. They saw him actually walk on that sea. And the most stunning eyewitness testimony of all is that the apostles actually saw Jesus alive after he had died on the cross. No truth is more important than the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the number of people who saw the risen Christ is absolutely staggering. All right, so hold your place in 2 Peter chapter one. Turn left, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so we'll start in verse three. By the way, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 15, you need to know that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Church of Corinth around A.D. 55. That's significant. A.D. 55, okay, so that's just about 25 years after the death of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, that is too short of time for legend to creep into the story. I was hoping somebody would say amen on that one. Are you guys with me this morning? Are you engaging with the message this morning? AD 55 is just about 25 years from the death of Christ, and that is too short a time for legend to creep in 
to the story, and all God's people said, amen. amen. This is important because what are we doing? We're showing the authenticity of the Christian faith. So that when you, not if you, but when you have your storm in the future and all hell is breaking loose in your life and you're ready to give up, you'll really have some substance to know that you can keep going forward because Jesus is real, he's not a myth. That's why this is important. And so starting in 1 Corinthians 15, verse three, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And of course, the New Testament has not been fully developed yet, so he's talking about the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, specifically those prophecies that talk about his suffering and death, Isaiah, 20, Isaiah 53, um, Psalm 22, Daniel 9, etc. Verse four. Okay, so he died for our sins, and according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. Can you guys say the word appeared? appeared? He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. And then he, can you say appeared? appeared. To more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died or fallen asleep. Verse seven, then he appeared. Can you guys say appeared? appeared. To James. And then to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared, can you say it one more time? Also to me, for I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so we know that the resurrection of Jesus is not a myth because he appeared. He appeared to eyewitnesses who saw him. And so I want, I want you to look at verse six again. This is like one of the top three apologetic verses in the entire Bible showing the authenticity of the Christian faith. First Corinthians 15, six. It says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. All right, so I want you to imagine right now, God forbid this ever happens, but I want you to imagine that during this service, if a crook came in that back door and that he uh, tackled one of the ladies back here and began to um, fight for that purse of that lady, right, and 200 of you actually look and you see his face, he overpowers the woman and he takes off out the back door. And then as he's running down the street, um, the police officers, and by the way, can we really quick pause the message and thank God for the police officers and the security team that watch over us so that as you guys are looking this way, they're always looking that way because they have our backs. We should thank God for our police. But anyway, back to the story, and let's say they, they tackle this guy, they arrest him, and then later in court, 200 of you give eyewitness testimony, looking at the guy saying, that's him, I saw it. He's the guy who stole the lady's purse. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the verdict regarding that man gonna be? Guilty. Okay, so follow the reasoning here. Over 500 people saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. And so what does that mean? That means that Jesus is guilty. 
He's guilty of rising from the dead. It's true. It's not a legend, it's not a myth. This is a fact of history. And so somebody says, well, what if Paul lied? Well, first of all, you think, okay, why would these Peter, James, John, Paul, why would these guys lie? They were Jews, right? And so a lot of these Jews that stood up for Christ and his resurrection were kicked out of their synagogue. They were beaten. Some of them were put to death. What motive did they have? So they can build condos on the Sea of Galilee and make a lot of money and become rich? No. They had no motive at all to make this stuff up. But nonetheless, how do we know Paul wasn't lying? How do we know he didn't just insert that word uh, 500, that number 500 in the text? Well, here's how we know he's not lying. Look at verse six again, please. It says, then Jesus appeared, the risen Christ appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Here we go. Most of whom, okay, so what's most of 500? 250 plus. Most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep or some have died. The reason we know Paul didn't lie is because he said most of the 500 who saw the risen Christ are still alive in AD 55. That would be a great title for a book someday on apologetics. Still alive in AD 55. Get over it, Jesus is alive. Somebody needs to write that book. He's still alive in AD 55. So what, uh, these people. So what does that mean? That means that if you're a skeptic in Israel in AD 55, you can go hunt down 250 people, knock on their door, and look in their eyes and say, did you really see him alive after he had been dead? And over 250 of them would say, yes. I saw the risen Christ. And so we'll say guilty about some guy who steals a purse, but we'll say, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I believe this stuff. As you're turning back to 2 Peter uh, chapter one, again, the truth is, far from being a myth, Christianity is based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. Now, one of the most notable eyewitness accounts is gonna be talked about right now by the apostle Peter in verse 17. 2 Peter chapter one, verse 17, he writes about the transfiguration of Christ. He said, for when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God couldn't be any clearer than that. Verse 18, Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so Peter right now refers to the transfiguration of Christ recorded in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm just gonna give you Matthew's account. So Matthew 17, verse one. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. We call these three guys the inner three. And he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Okay, so Peter looks at his men and he says, hey, Peter, Peter James, and John, it's time to go on a hike and we're gonna go hiking in the mountains. And this is the mountain we're gonna hike up. What mountain? Mount Hermon. It's beautiful, it's gorgeous. Right, how do you know Mount Hermon, not Mount Tabor? Um, Here's how we know, because in Matthew 16, it says that Jesus and the disciples were in the district of Caesarea Philippi, which is at the foot of Mount Hermon. Mount uh, Mount, Mount Tabor is way far away. And so 
that's it. Someday, if you go with us to Israel, you'll get to see this beautiful mountain in person. It's located in the Golan Heights. It's 28 miles long. It's over 10 miles wide. And its highest peak is over 9,000 feet above sea level. And so they began their ascent. I don't know what, exactly what time of year it was, but snow is up on those highest peaks almost year round. But they began their ascent. I don't know how far up they went, but here's what I know. When Jesus, Peter, James, and John got up there and they turned around and they faced south and a little bit west, they had a panoramic, beautiful, gorgeous view of the promised land. It'd be like, hey, look, there's the Sea of Galilee. Oh, look over here to the west. There's the Mediterranean Sea. And look over here, it's the Valley of Jezreel. It's Megiddo. It's Armageddon, where the final battle is gonna take place one day. But as beautiful as that view was, as they were up on that mountain right there, nothing would be more stunning than what they saw right now. Verse two, Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Can you imagine this? And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. I mean, you talk about a mountaintop experience. And so the three apostles, they saw the king in all his glory, and Jesus was transfigured before them, before their very eyes, revealing his true identity. What does that mean? That means for a few breathtaking moments, all of a sudden, Jesus allows his deity to shine, to burst through his humanity. And Peter and James and John must have been in shock when they saw this. It says that his face shone like the sun. It says that his, his robe was white as light. I wonder if Peter and James and John, right, were covering their eyes. And now it says in verse three, and behold, three appeared to them. Moses and Elijah talking with him. And so there appeared to Jesus, James and John, Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So this is interesting, this is kind of a surprise. All of a sudden, there's the spirits of Moses and Elijah, and Luke tells us in his gospel that they were talking about Jesus' departure or Jesus' death. Can you imagine listening in on that conversation? I would pay big money to hear that conversation. And so Moses, who represents the law, follow me here, and Elijah, who's a famous prophet, are talking about Jesus and his death. Did you guys know that that is what the Old Testament does? The Old Testament points to Jesus and his death. The law, what does it do? It points to the Savior because as you and I are reading a holy God's holy law, we don't read it and say, oh, I'm so good. Are you ready for me, Lord? Here I come because I'm such a great guy. No, we read God's holy law and we beat our chest and say, oh my, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And thank God we turn to the New Testament and there he is right there, arms open wide, ready to accept us in and forgive us and reconcile us to a holy God. That's what the law does. It points to Christ 
and it points to his death. But the prophets too, the prophets speak of his suffering, the suffering servant. Think about Isaiah. Think about Isaiah 53. It's the gospel written 700 years before Christ. Read it later on today when you go home. The vicarious substitutionary death of the son in our place is right there in the prophets. And so what a fascinating conversation. I have no idea exactly what they're talking about except they're talking about his death. And everything was great until Peter decided he had to say something. You know Peter, right? Right? And so what did he say? Look at verse four. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's so good that we're here. <laughs> if you wish, I'll make you three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He's kind of putting Jesus on the same level as these two guys, you see that? Hey, let me make three tents, literally booths or tabernacles. No doubt he's talking about you know, the makeshift huts that the Jews would build and live in temporarily during the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, if you've been watching the Chosen series, uh, one or two episodes ago, they did this. They built the booth, the tabernacle, outside of Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Really cool to be able to see it uh, for yourself. And so, Lord, let me make three of these huts, right? Makeshift huts. But here's the thing. Why in the world would Moses and Elijah want to live in, uh, even temporarily, in a hut on the earth when they just came from the glories of paradise? None of this made sense, but you know Peter, He's got to say something, and so he's going to get interrupted, and you're not going to believe who interrupts him. Verse 5, and Peter, while he was still talking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. And so while Peter is still talking, I believe it was the Shekinah glory of God moves in on Mount Hermon, enveloping, overshadowing the whole scene. And the majestic voice of the Father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Apparently what he's saying is, Peter, it's not primarily about the law anymore because my son came to fulfill the law. And Peter, it's not primarily about the prophets anymore because my son came to fulfill those prophecies. Peter, it's about my son who, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And I've said it before, can you imagine? I, I'm just joking here, but if the Shekinah glory, glory cloud was shaped into a big finger pointing at Jesus, him, listen to him. And so they just hit the ground, and they're in the dirt. They're now, no doubt, trembling. And what does Jesus do? I love this about Jesus. He walks up gently. He doesn't scold him. He just touches him. And they look up, and there's Jesus, and he's back to normal again. And so we're so grateful, right? Because if you've never been in the presence of God and been scared, I don't think you've ever been in the presence of God. Because you need to get lost before you can get saved. You need to realize how holy God is and how sinful you are before you see your need for a savior. And the savior comes with gentleness and he says, rise up, don't be afraid. Now, what the inner three witnessed that day became a powerful 
testimony, if you're listening right now, say amen. Gotta stay with me all the way to the end because we're getting ready to go on some holy ground here. The whole Bible is inspired, but some parts are just like super, super important. We're getting there. And so, what the inner three witnessed that day became a powerful testimony of the reliability of the prophetic word. That leads us to verse 19. He says, Peter says, after giving the account, hey, I heard the voice. I saw Jesus transfigured. Verse 19, and we, the apostles, have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We, the whole church, have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We, the whole world, if they would just listen, have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, made more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Okay, so he says in the beginning of verse 19, and we have the prophetic word made more sure or more fully confirmed regarding that phrase right there. Listen to this. Chuck Swindoll said, and I quote, though Old Testament saints relied on their scriptures as infallible witness, its trustworthiness was made even more sure when Peter saw prophecies written regarding the Messiah actually come to pass. In other words, the prophetic word was made more sure, was confirmed in Jesus Christ. We all know that this is, I hope you believe this, the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. But when we see these prophecies being literally fulfilled in Jesus, it makes those that prophetic word confirmed. If you're following me, say amen here. All right, so Peter went on to say in verse 19 that we should pay more attention to the prophetic word. Regarding that term, prophetic word, John MacArthur says this, all, can you guys say the word all, please? All of the Old Testament was written by prophets in the truest sense, since they spoke and wrote God's word, which was the task of the prophet. What does that mean? That means that we should pay attention to all of the Old Testament because like a lamp, what does it do? It illuminates our path as we're navigating through this dark world until that great day dawns and the morning star, Jesus Christ, returns to the earth and changes us into his likeness. Psalm 119.105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and it is a light to my path. And so what is Peter saying here? In the second part of verse 19, what he's saying is, hey, I know this world is dark. I know this world is murky. I know you're going through difficult times, but here's what you need to do. Open the book, because the book will illuminate your path, because one day when Jesus comes, when that day dawns and the morning star comes back, hey, it's gonna be light. But right now it's dark. Thank God for the book. And so, we should look at the whole book because the New Testament is just as inspired as the Old Testament. I'll get to that point in a moment, but please now look at verse 20. Okay, I'm going slower here. I'm being very more careful. I'm, 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 I'm wanting to rightly divide the word of truth because this is very important stuff right here. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of, what's the word? Scripture, in the Greek that's graphe, it's the writings. It's the original manuscripts. 
knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now that's interesting because the word interpretation in the Greek literally means unloosing. And so what is he saying? He's saying you guys need to know first of all that no prophecy of the scripture comes from someone's own unloosing, unloosing of their own ideas. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a bunch of man-made ideas that becomes inspired to you when you read it and you feel inspired. This is some of the nonsense that's being taught in churches today, that the inspiration of the Bible means that when you read it and you're inspired, that's when the Bible becomes the inspired word of God. No, no, it's when they wrote it. When they wrote it, it was the word of God, the scripture, the graphe. Don't believe everything you hear. And look at verse 21, he further explains it. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It's not some guys unloosing their own ideas, no. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that phrase, they were carried along. All right, so look at the picture. Just as the wind fills the sails and moves, carries along that vessel on the water, so you need to know that the Holy Spirit of God filled the apostles and the prophets, the prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament. He filled them and he carried them along as they spoke and as they wrote the word of God. And we know it was when they wrote the word of God as well because verse 20 says that no prophecy of the graphe, the scripture, the written word ever comes from somebody's own unloosing of their own ideas. So when it comes to the scriptures, you need to know that God was the primary cause and the human authors were the secondary cause. Regarding the co-authorship of the scriptures, the late theologian Lorraine Bettner says this. And by the way, we should thank God for men of God who stood and taught the word of God as it is the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. Because ladies and gentlemen, there's evangelical preachers today like me who are saying nonsense about how this is not God's word. Don't believe it, don't go down that road. Stay true in this age of apostasy. There's mainline denominations right now that are ordaining um, homosexual clergy and they're performing homosexual marriages, why? Because they don't really believe this book when it talks about how homosexuality is sin or for that, for that matter, all sex outside of marriage is sin. They don't believe it. And so this is, they're, they're just unloosing their own ideas upon the church. We cannot, we will not give in to the age of apostasy. We will not fall away. And so thank God for men of God who says stuff like this. The Bible is a divine human book. Though it originated from God, it was actually written by man. It is God's word conveyed through the Holy Spirit. Sinful men wrote that word, but did so without error. Of course, he's talking about the original manuscripts. Um, just as in the incarnation, Christ took humanity but was not tainted in any way with sin, so the production of the Bible was not tainted with any errors. And so I'm gonna teach you a new term here. It's really simple, it's not hard. It's the, the term is theanthropic book. Theanthropic, theos, that's God, anthropos, that's man. You put it together, theanthropic book. What does that mean? That means that there's two authors here 
It was authored by God and man, and therefore it has two natures. It has a divine nature and a human nature. I know I'm getting a little deeper than usual, but, but stay with me here. What does this remind you of? It should remind you of Jesus Christ. Because in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word, you guys finish it out, was God. Jesus was God. Go down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does that mean? That means that two natures residing in one person. Similarly, the Bible has two natures inside of one book. Now don't take that too far and start worshiping the Bible, that's crazy. We worship the living word, but we do not worship the written word, we respect the written word. But you need to know that God initiated the process of inspiration. And outside of the times that he actually dictated, relatively few times that he actually dictated the word, like the 10 Commandments, you need to know that he never bypassed the human author's personalities, their vocabulary, their literary styles, their interests, or their emotions. Here's the number one verse on inspiration in the entire Bible. Paul tells Timothy this. How much scripture? Can you guys say the first word? All. You see it? Graphe, that's the written word. There should be no debate about this issue. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so the graphe, the scripture, the written word, breathed out by God through holy men as the Spirit of God carries them along and it extends to all 66 books of the Bible. And so, again, New Testament, just as inspired as the Old Testament. In fact, later on in this letter, we're gonna see that Peter calls Paul's letters scripture, graphe. That's 1 Peter, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And so, Old Testament, New Testament, inspired by God. I got so much more to say about this, but we're out of time. So let me recommend a really good documentary if you wanna go deeper into this very important subject. It's called The God Who Speaks. The God Who Speaks. If you wanna take out your camera and take a, a quick picture of that, uh, it's about an hour and a half long. It's basically a film on bibliology or the study of the Bible. It's not for the faint-hearted, but it's super, super good. It won Best Documentary, uh, from the Christian Worldview Film Festival in 2018. And there's lots of contributors. Some of them um, include Alistair Begg, Josh McDowell, D.A. Carson, Erwin Lutzer, Albert Moeller, and Frank Turek, Dr. Frank Turek, who's coming here to Calvary PSL this December. We're excited about that. But all of these men of God, um, and, and um, it's so important that they take a stand the Bible is God's word. We'll just leave it up for 10 more seconds in case you wanna take a picture, um, but this will help you go even deeper in this super important topic that we're talking about. Because ladies and gentlemen, here's the bottom line. If we don't believe that this is God's word, all is lost. All is lost. <laughs>